It's good to see everybody here, and uh, if you weren't at the wedding yesterday, it was really interesting having these uh, walk for water canisters up the front during the service, and, uh, but I think we got the message out, you know, so uh, <clears throat> um, I, I don't know if there are any donations taken, but uh, I'm sure Curtis will be collecting from everybody that uh, uh, was here yesterday, now that they know about it. Okay, they weren't, they weren't there. Don't, 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 don't tell anybody that. It was a good day. A good day. And it uh, went, uh, went very well. I just want an additional uh, announcement that I want to uh, share is next Sunday afternoon, the teens and tweens are going to go bowling at 3 o'clock. So it'll just be at the bowling place down here on the corner. And uh, I'll get out more uh, detailed information. Um, but uh, three, three, three o'clock next Sunday afternoon. All right. We are continuing our sermon series uh, looking at good news. What is the gospel that causes great joy for all? people. So uh, by the end of this series, you should be able to just rattle off nine different points of, uh, I know that's a lot, isn't it? So you probably won't ever rattle off nine different points. I think really what my goal is as we go through here is just to be able to see the gospel as something that is bigger than what we've historically uh, regarded it as, okay? And uh, and so um, maybe some of these will resonate with you more than others. And, and, and I say that because what we observe in looking at the preaching and the teaching from the uh, examples in the book of Acts is that sometimes, depending who the audience is, they emphasize you know, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Other times they emphasize that God is the creator and that we want to introduce you to, uh, to that creator God. And uh, so, it, it, for, for some people, they just accept that God is the creator. You don't need to convince them of that, right? So that's not good news, that's just news. That's just what they've always known. You know, haven't, haven't ever considered it any other way. Okay? So we're not going to spend, make them sit through a 45-minute sermon just to let them know that, hey, yeah, yeah God's the creator. Because yeah. um, they're like, I knew that after the first two minutes. Uh, so you're like, well, what was last week about, Peter? But um, what is the gospel? So there are our first, uh, first two weeks in our series. Uh, we've, we've just sort of covered the idea of good news, that it has to be good. It has to be news, and uh, that's the, the meaning of, of gospel. And uh, then, as I mentioned, the, that God is the creator, God, the ultimate source of everything. So, um, because it's good news, I think that sometimes we might lose sight of just what is a very basic definition there, that sometimes our message might sound something along the lines of, hey, come over here 
and be miserable in church with me. Here's a list of things you can't do. And, you know, here's a list of songs we expect you to learn and sing. Um, we're going to make you uncomfortable. Um, but you need to be here because if you don't come and be miserable with me, you'll go somewhere else and be even more miserable. Okay? And, and, and sometimes, maybe we don't ever intend, I hope, to say it quite like that, but I do think that sometimes that's what people hear. <laughs> they, they're, they're not convinced that being with God's people is a better place to be than being at the beach. Okay? So, so on the list of places that they could be this morning, we've got to convince them that this is the best place for them to be. How do we do that? Sit quietly. Don't fall asleep. <laughs> you know, stand up, sit down when you're told. Um, so we, we, the way we frame it, the way we present the gospel, because it's not just about being here. It's the reason that we're here. It's everything that you know, goes into our reason for being. But uh, there, there's a lot of other good things in our community, aren't there? A lot of alternatives. And, and our task is to convince people that worshipping God is a better thing than whatever those good things are. And so hopefully we don't find that to be a difficult task. Hopefully if somebody says, why do you go to church on Sunday, that we can respond to that in a way that makes it sound attractive. There's a, there's a reason I worship God each week because, and you fill in the blank, okay? Not because I get dragged along there, um, or if I don't, I get in trouble. Okay. Last week, as I said, we talked about knowing, how, we discussed how the gospel begins with knowing God, right? If, if we don't know God, then what's the point of introducing Jesus? Okay, so, so first we have to know God, because knowing God introduces us to the concept of relationship with God, introduces us to the concept of sin, introduces us to the concept then of forgiveness, introduces us to the idea that this world isn't the way it was intended to be, and that God is still working to bring it back, uh, to recreate both ourselves and the world. When we talk about the gospel beginning with the Creator, one aspect we may overlook as we think on the, the grandeur of God, the, the detail-oriented nature of God, you know, we look at different aspects of it, but, but one aspect we may overlook is the longevity of the gospel story. Okay? We can sometimes get set in our minds that the gospel is a New Testament concept. Okay? Um, and, and maybe that's because there are four books that we call the gospels to start the New Testament. So, you know, it's a perfectly logical sort of um, way of thinking. But in reality, God has been setting the stage throughout history. And, and if that stage hadn't been set, those four books of good news would be 
uh, quite different than they are. So sometimes good news can be take a little bit of unwrapping. Uh, this is the first chapter of Matthew. Okay? And um, John, aren't you glad you didn't have to read that for uh, the, the scripture this morning? <laughs> Daryl probably would have tagged in for you. He, he loves the names, you know, I, I know. <laughs> so um, this is the first chapter of Matthew. And, and it seems like the strangest way to begin a book of good news, right? I'm going to list, and there's 14, I think 14 names in each of, each of those sections. Um, so what's that, 28, 42, and then it includes Jesus, so 41. So it, it, it's a list of 41 of Jesus' ancestors going all the way back to Abraham. Okay? Uh, if you were to you know, tell my story, I think you'd go back to my great-grandfather and they'd be like, they just came from the dirt, I guess, at that point. Um, so that, that, that's all I, I could take you back. But for Jesus, it goes all the way back to Abraham. And, and we look at that and we go, Matthew, why would you begin this way? Because to be honest, most of the time, you know, if you're reading through the, if you're not on a plan that says, I'm going to read a chapter every day, you'd say, I'm going to read the Gospel of Matthew, and instead just start at chapter 2, right? Yep. Or, or, or the very first verse of Matthew, I think it says there, um, yeah, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And you go, okay, that's good for me. Now let's go to chapter 2. <laughs> right? Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. And, uh, and then we move on. Because the names don't mean a lot to us. So why, why do it? Why start this way? Well, I don't really know. You know Matthew made that decision, not, not me, and he doesn't really say why. But there are some observations that we can make about it. And the one that I want to just draw to our attention this morning is this idea of longevity. That... Jesus, although his, you know, we, we believe in his virgin birth, right? And we go, in a sense, he just dropped down from heaven. Right? But he didn't just drop down from heaven. Not just. He did, but not just. He's the culmination of 41 generations. And there's probably some missing, because it's highly unlikely that there are actually 14, you know, evenly spaced out in the way that they're described. So, 41 plus generations, all the way back to Abraham. The gospel, according to Matthew, begins with Abraham. And then the gospel carried on to Isaac and Jacob. They didn't even know that they were carriers of the gospel. But Judah and Perez and Hezron and Ram and Aminadab, Nashon, Salmon, Boaz, Obed, Jesse and David. Carriers of the gospel. How many of them had any awareness of that? Solomon, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, Manasseh, Ammon, Josiah, 
and Jeconiah, carriers of the gospel through the centuries. And then we come to the silent, so-called silent years. Jeconiah, Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, Abiad, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok, Akim, Elihud, Eliezer, Mathan, Jacob, Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. In those silent years, the gospel was being carried out until it arrived at Jesus. And so the gospel doesn't begin with Jesus. We saw last week the gospel begins with God. But the gospel is carried through these generations. God is is faithful. God is maintaining that continuity from Abraham all the way through to Jesus, through the exiles, through the period of the judges, through the kings and their idolatry, through the destruction of Jerusalem, through the exile in Babylon, through the rebuilding of Jerusalem, through centuries of, of wondering where God was and when the kingdom would be restored, through all of that until it comes to Jesus. God is at work because the gospel is carrying through that whole time. And then as Matthew tells the story of Jesus' birth, he time and again points out how the events fulfill things that had been talked about during the time of these names, right? Because it's not just the names. The names are, are exist and they remind us of the connection they remind us of the longevity but but during that time god was doing stuff god was talking to people people were writing things down and some of the things they were writing down they didn't know it but they applied to jesus and so when jesus is born matthew then starts pointing out these things and he says um, time and again that they fulfill all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said, what the prophet said, what Jeremiah said, it was fulfilled. Fulfilling the requirement that the Messiah be a descendant of David. Fulfilling Jesus' escape to Egypt and his return to Nazareth. Fulfilling Herod's attack on the babies of Bethlehem. Fulfilling that the Messiah would come from Galilee. And then in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17, Jesus himself states that he is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament law and the prophets. It's been building to this point. When the Magi came looking for the newborn king, where'd they look? They looked where you would normally look for a newborn king. They went to the palace. And the palace said, we don't have a newborn king, but we'll do some looking. (laughs) We want to know about this guy. So they sent their spy agency out to find out what this was going on. They went to the priests and the teachers of the law, and uh, they said, what's all this about? And they said, well, you know, there's this verse in the, the saying, 
said by the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. And Micah says, But in you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. And the priests no doubt said to Herod's spies, they, they, they said, look, there's never been a king to come out of Bethlehem. Micah said it's going to happen, but you know it hasn't. Maybe you should go check out Bethlehem. And so they tell the wise men, either the spies go back to Herod, and Herod tells the, the wise men, the magi, he says, well, you know, maybe try Bethlehem, which they do. Lo and behold, there in Bethlehem is the newborn king that they've been looking for. Only able to locate him because of a prophecy that was fulfilled that Jesus had no control over, did he? Like there are some of the prophecies that Jesus sort of said, oh, I want to demonstrate myself to be the Messiah. And so I'm going to do the thing that is predicted by the Messiah. Right? I think a great example of that is riding into Jerusalem. Right? He tells them to go and get a donkey. He could have said, hey guys, tomorrow we'll just walk in. He could have told them to go get a horse or a chariot or a wagon. Instead, he's very specific about what they're to get because he was aware of the prophecy about the Messiah coming on the, the foal of a donkey. And so he, he, he set that up and said, this, I'm going to enter in this way. I'm going to, to make my entrance and draw attention to myself. But he had no say about where he was going to be born. His parents lived in Nazareth. Right? So there's no way a child is going to say, hey, parents, even though it's in utero and can't talk anyway, but if it could, is this baby in utero going to say, hey, Mary, I'm putting ideas in your head. Um, let's go to Bethlehem. Bethlehem. You know? And Mary wakes up in the night and hears this voice, Bethlehem. Right? We know it doesn't work like that. And so God is at work. God is, is making statements centuries before Jesus, that are then fulfilled in Jesus. If I was to stand here today and list or read all of the, the prophecies from the Old Testament that, that Jesus fulfilled, we'd be here for a little while. There isn't any single number, because different people count in different ways, and they're like, is that an illusion, or is that... Uh, a specific, I'm only counting specific predictions, um, but most of the counts will range somewhere between 300 and 600 different prophecies from the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the life of, of Jesus. And, and so that's, that's a lot, right? right? That, that's a lot of stuff. One of the, I heard one description, I think it was Josh McDowell in one of his books, said that the chances of this the chance of this happening by chance is like if you covered the state of Texas, which I've heard is a big state, um, with, uh, with quarters, and they were a, a foot deep, a foot deep over the whole state of Texas. You put an X on one of them, 
it would be something like the chance of, one, of a person going, pulling one coin out of that state of Texas and that coin having an X on it. Okay? So, uh, I haven't checked the math and I'm not going to check the math, but, but you get the idea. For 300 to 600 you know, prophecies to actually take place in the life of, of one person is something that's fantastic. So, that's good news then, isn't it? Because if you've got these things that are, are going to happen and they happen, that's good. Uh, presuming they're good things. Um, but what does, let's get a little more specific, what does the, the talk of fulfilled prophecy have to do with good news? It is the starting point of Matthew's gospel, right? This fulfills, this fulfills, this fulfills. Um, Mark also begins his gospel by quoting the prophet Isaiah in verse 2. Okay, you go to Mark and the first thing is, here's what a prophet said is going to happen. And he quotes from Isaiah. You go to Luke chapter 1 and verse 1 and uh, he follows the others by saying that his gospel is an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us. Not the things that have been done among us, but have been fulfilled among us. That, that what God said was going to happen has happened. And that is good news. Even if you think of the devil's temptation of Jesus after his baptism, uh, the, the, the devil presumes knowledge of what has already happened as he quotes Scripture and uh, he uh, quotes Scripture to Jesus and he says, these words apply to you. He says, doesn't the, the Scripture say that the Messiah will be able to jump, you know, won't break a bone, right? That if you fall, the angels will catch you? Let's try it out, right? You see, he's saying, look, this is what the, the prophets, what God through the prophets said about the Messiah, and it applies to you. You're fulfilling these prophecies, right, Jesus? Let's, let's try them out. And, and so even the devil is, in a sense, endorsing that Jesus is the fulfillment of those Old Testament prophecies. And if we turn just here to the book of Romans, I'd like you to notice how uh, Paul describes the, the gospel at the beginning of Romans. Romans, uh, I think I have this on the slide, yep, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Okay? So the gospel is promised by the prophets in the Old Testament regarding his son, who, as to his earthly life, was a descendant of David, and who, through the spirit of holiness, was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. So it's really interesting to see what he doesn't mention. Doesn't mention the cross, does he? Goes straight to the resurrection. But he does mention that this is all fulfillment of the gospel that had been taught by the prophets. As if that isn't enough, he makes a similar point when we come to the end of the book in Romans chapter 16 and the very last verses. Um, I know it says Romans 1, but it's Romans 16 and verse 25. To him 
who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. Um, for uh, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So the gospel again is a fulfillment of what the prophets are saying here. That it go out to the Gentiles, right? That good news has been in the Old Testament the whole time that you and I could become children of God. And it had just been overlooked, that part of it, uh, for a long, a long time. So I, I think this is a, in some ways a difficult one because we tend to use prophecies and their fulfillment as sort of a, an apologetic, a demonstration that the Bible must be true. But I want us to, to try and understand it from this idea of being gospel. The fact that the prophecies have been fulfilled, that Jesus is who God said he was going to be, the fact that that came to pass um, is good news. I want to give you an example, and um, this is an old photograph from, uh, of Justin Martyr. And Justin Martyr was born in the year 100. And he lived in Israel, that was where he raised up, but he wasn't Jewish. And so he attended different philosophical schools. That was kind of how, instead of going to a university, uh, you went to a, you, you attached yourself to a teacher, a rabbi sort of. Um, even the Greeks had these teachers. And then the teacher was, you know, sort of tied to Aristotle or to Plato or to the Stoics or to different groups, different schools of philosophical thought. And that was just kind of how Greek society was, was structured. And Justin, even as a young, young man, uh, had a hard time finding the answers to sort of the meaning of life that he was, he was looking for. But he was still devout in his studies and in his uh, following whichever teacher it was at the time. He went through about three or four different philosophical schools. And one day he's out for a walk and he meets a Christian. He never knows the Christian's name, never meets the Christian again. And um, there probably could be a sermon there. But this, this Christian uh, describes how Jesus' life had been prophesied. How Jesus wasn't just another Aristotle who looked around at the world and you know, made observations, but how Jesus' life had been prophesied. That, that history had been working to reach to this point that Jesus would exist, that Jesus would, would represent God, that, that Jesus would connect humanity with God in a way that had never been done before. And it was this description of, of Jesus fulfilling the prophecies, of, of 
life and history sort of building to this point that captured Justin's imagination. And, and, and he said, this is different from all of my other teachers. Right? And so he, he begins to explore it. And in time becomes a, a Christian himself. Justin, um, because he was so well educated, he, he realized that um, Christians were sort of in this middle ground between the Jews who wanted to reject them and the Romans who also didn't trust them. And so he wrote some significant books. And uh, in fact, one of the books that, that he wrote was sent to Caesar, sort of asking for making the case for who they were. You know, there were rumors that because Christians didn't have any pictures of their gods, that they were of their God, that they were atheists. Um, because they eat and drink the the blood and the body of Jesus, you know, at the Lord's Supper. They were cannibals. Um, because they call everybody brother and sister, they were incestuous. And so th these rumors are out there in society. And so uh, Justin becomes the first real, what we call apologist, defender of the Christian faith, writing for an audience of non-Christians, including Caesar. And so those books have been, uh, his writings through the centuries have been very important in giving us an understanding of what church life was like between 100 and 165. Um, ultimately, Justin was beheaded uh, for his faith. Why he's called Justin Martyr. It started with being convinced that the prophecies about Jesus mean that there's something special about Jesus. He had this to say. This is his words. There existed long before this time certain men more ancient than all those who are esteemed philosophers, both righteous and beloved by God, who spoke by the divine spirit and foretold events which would take place and which are now taking place. They are called prophets. And so this was his understanding of uh, of the way that God has working. You see, it's not just a list of names at the beginning of Matthew. It's a testimony to God working throughout those centuries, throughout those families, throughout those generations to uh, come to Jesus. And so it's good news because... Let me give you some simple answers here. It's good news because we have a faith heritage. Galatians tells us that Christians become Israel, right? We become Abraham's descendants through Jesus. But it's, our faith heritage means it's not just somebody making something up. Jesus didn't roll out of bed one day and say, you know, I think I'm going to start a new religion. I think I'm going to go out and get some followers. I think I could get rich from this. I think I could become influential from this. I think I'm a, a, an eloquent speaker that I could get some people on board with me. And, and, and he didn't just do that. And we know that, and it differentiates him from everyone else. Because Jesus was the culmination of a heritage of faith that had been carried through, that's described throughout the Old Testament. Centuries of faithful men and women 
uh, centuries of prophecy and anticipation. And so our faith heritage, when we recognize that that is our heritage also that extends all the way back to Abraham, it should give us confidence because it doesn't just extend back to Abraham from Jesus. It now extends back to Abraham from us through Jesus to David, to Abraham, to Adam, and to God. God is at work in the world and in his people from the very beginning all the way up to Jesus and up to us. Sometimes when we see the word heritage, we might think of something that's old or in a museum, but this is something that's very much living. God is a promise keeper. One of the ways that Justin, and also we see Paul do this in describing the prophecies to Gentile pagan audiences. That type of futuristic prophecy wasn't particularly common. And so they talked about the promises of God. The promise, if you will, that Jesus be born in Bethlehem. The promise that a Messiah would come. And so when we view it that way, when we think of it not as these prophecies being fulfilled as a, an evidence that God is at work or that Jesus is who he says he is, when we think of it as a promises, 300 to 700 promises that came true, now we say, oh, God keeps his promises. And if God keeps his promises about Jesus, is he going to keep his promises about us? I think so. I believe so. God is faithful, is another way of, of phrasing that. We see something about God's nature in this fulfillment of promises. That, that God communicates with people, that God's engaged with people, that God isn't just up there and out there and doing his thing and letting us do our thing. God cares for his creation. And also God is patient, right? <laughs> that, that he was willing to start with Abraham and end with Jesus with 40 plus generations in between. Right? It's not even possible for us to be that patient. Because we're not going to be around in 40 generations' time, right? So, 40 minutes? Yeah, you know, that's pushing it for some of us. 40, 40 hours? Uh, yeah, well, I can do that, maybe. 40 weeks until my vacation comes around? Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll stick it out. 40 years. In an extreme case. 40 generations. God is patient, but God is steadfast. God endures. God doesn't give up. And all of this, I think, comes together to give us confidence. Gives us confidence in who God is. Gives us confidence in our relationship with God. It also gives us confidence that the Bible isn't just a book of philosophical observations. The Bible that we build so much of our lives upon, that communicates so much to us about God, is inspired in a manner that gives God authority 
in our lives. Okay? What's the difference between a, you know, a book that Oprah writes and a book that God writes? Okay? Well, one of the big differences is that God has demonstrated that what he writes is true because it comes true. Okay? And that gives us confidence. That gives us confidence. It gives him authority. And there are people that are able to predict you know, do you ever see those ads and they're like, so-and-so predicted the last stock market fall. And here's what they're saying now. And then whatever they're saying now doesn't happen. Right? You're like, well, I guess, you know, what is it, a blind squirrel will find a nut every so often? You know, and so I'm glad they got the last stock market fall right. Yeah? But that doesn't give us a lot of confidence for their track record. For God, we can have confidence in his word. And that gives him authority in our lives. That's why fulfillment of God's promises is good news for all of us.